This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So please join me in welcoming Professor Julie Carson, Carlson to the Pollock Theater. <laughs> um, she is the author of several books on, on British Romanticism, Mary Shelley, and Legacies of Friendship and Creativity. Uh, once again, I want to thank Julie Carlson for all of her assistance with our series and for her own work on campus to facilitate interdisciplinary conversations about Shelley's novel. So let's begin. So as a scholar of British Romantic era writing, what do you find most compelling about this biopic? Mary Shelley. <laughs> I like that it, it tries to take us through at least some of the complexity of her thinking that went into Frankenstein. I think to the extent people know Mary Shelley, I mean, other than scholars, um, you know, they know Frankenstein, and they know Frankenstein usually as the monster, which of course it isn't even that. So, so this, this biopic is really trying to alter that view, give us a sense of you know, the, the different kinds of issues that that text is raising, but also the different kinds of philosophical and lived uh, questions her life presented her with at a very young age. Mm -hmm. So I, I also like that it's, you know, it attempts to be quite loving toward reading and, and the sort of, and, but also passionate about it. I mean, anguished, angry, you know, jealous, uh, rageful, um, and that that's the life for her, of her life, mm -hmm. or at least it's a, it's a huge aspect of the life of her. So were there any surprises for you in the way that the, the, the film rendered the novel? Anything surprising? Well, Percy's very good looking. Mary's <laughs> <laughs> very good looking. Doesn't hurt in her movie, you know? Yeah. Um, well, it's a... Uh, you know, you think about the kinds of choices when you know more of the biography. Um, I think it's clearly trying to make the novel and uh, Mary Shelley or Mary Godwin's or Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin's relation to it um, deeply feminist. And I don't think that's wrong, um, but I think for some, certainly from scholars' approach to, to that text, it, it that's a debate, because some people see Frankenstein as a kind of reaction to both of her parents, mm -hmm. and that she, in Frankenstein, is very uh, concerned of what we owe our creatures, and they and she is, um, but and and so some of the readings, both in popular culture and certainly in, and also in scholarly culture, seem to seem to want to foreground. Um, that she returns to a sort of domesticity or at least, a, you know, a concern with, with the family that is overstated. And I think this film, it's, it's interesting. It, it really does the feminist aspects of her independence, of she was thinking these things long before she met Percy. Um, the, the part about the publication history is a little overstated on, you know, mm -hmm. she's going to do it by herself and so on. At the, at the same time that um, 
we can talk about this more later, but it, it, it does also uh, leave out more of the revolutionary and political context and makes it domesticated in ways that I think is, is overdone too. So it's a weird, you know, it's, it's, you know, so I mean, I think it opens up the question as many things do. What, it depends on what we mean by feminism. It's certainly uh, presenting I'm going to say Mary Shelley. I should always really say Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin at this point. Um, as, a, as, a, as a mind that is informed by her, primarily by her parents and her lovers. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true and not true. Mm-hmm. Well, just to, to, to build on that, I mean, the, the film makes a great deal of Mary's love of science, and there's, there's many instances where it seems kind of forced. You know, Mary, we, we know how much you love science. I mean, I know they're trying to, to work it in, but it also, you know, yeah. it shows us mid-1800s, um, um, you know, experiments with electricity um, and uh, attempts to bring back um, the dead to life, images of galvanism, the whole phantasmagoria, and as we were speaking, the kind of crossroads of science and magic where science itself is kind of magical. There's something... But could you say a little bit more about... Because I was really struck in the movie by, you know, Mary loves science. Yeah, Mary yeah. loves science. I know, that was a little odd. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Mary loved a lot of things. <laughs> and, you know, it, it certainly... I mean, many people know this. In the period, you know, there weren't as rigid of distinctions between poets, artists, surgeons, and natural philosophers. And her father's household, you know, was abuzz with all these, Mm -hmm. with this confluence. I mean, and so it's partly through um, who was in the house when she was little, and certainly, you know, Coleridge, that figures oddly in the film, but, you know, is in the text an important backstory uh, to Frankenstein, the ancient mariner, that is. But Coleridge also, you know, Humphrey Davy and he were good friends, Joseph Priestley, you know. So many of the major natural philosophers are part of the Godwin-Shelley household. And, of course, Percy Shelley, too, was, you know, fascinated with electricity and so on. And Mary, um, you know, certainly in the novel, she makes that link explicitly where... Uh, Victor Frankenstein's quest for science begins with the alchemists of the 14th century and, and makes that linkage. But, and it's, it's partly about magic and science, but I think for, for uh, Mary Shelley, it's really what lies behind both is imagination. And they don't stress that as much. I mean, they make it more, you like science, you like this. But I think for her, the issue is the relation of the new, you know, that imagination brings in discovery that is both a scientific and a literary and certainly an artistic project. And, and, and the text for her, as well as, I think, some of these attempts to make the, the phantasmic and the scientific converge, uh, is, is that we, you know, we, we have to think new things and they come from the arts, or they come from science, and, and it's not as, I mean, it, 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 the division is not as, as yeah, sharp. Of course. Well, to, to, to bring it down to earth a little bit, one of the other things that struck me in the rendering of this film, and I'm not interested in it's, you know, how historically accurate it is, but much is made of the, um, of the 
relationship between um, artistic life and economic necessity. And, um, and characters are even kind of framed by their relationship to, to this supposed opposition. So her stepmother is very much this kind of only concerned about money, making money, keeping, you know, she has a businesswoman's approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet, you know, and Percy himself, he's cut off by his father. He borrows across his estate. They go from the heights in, uh, of these incredible yeah. estates to back to the flat in London. So could you talk a little bit about that, um, both in terms of in real life at the time, this kind of economic necessity and artistic life? Yeah, I mean, this period is often understood to be um, as a certain, you know, I hate when people say it's the moment when or it's the period when. I mean, it's, it's often very hard to demarcate, but there is a professionalizing of, of the writer and a movement outside of patronage systems to marketplace systems. And, you know, so, it, and it is the case that Godwin... Um, you know he's low, he's middle class uh, intellectual, but at this point in real life, when the when Mary Jane Claremont uh, and he marry, she has two children and he has two, and then they have a third, uh, I mean a fifth together. Mm-hmm. So there is, and they are they're on hard times financially because you know they lo- they loan money and they mm-hmm. spend money, and so it's Mary Jane Godwin's idea to start the bookstore and but that that also so it's not just professionalizing of writing where there's the question of it as now more as a as a middle class pursuit that has to sell books and it becomes commodity you know they become commodities rather than more you know patronage products um, but he yeah that's his livelihood at this point is actually selling books and and it's a it's it's partly a children's bookstore because she um, translated for children's books and, and that she worked for Taberts before they, they got together. So, like, she, she had this background. So, Mary, uh, Mrs., the, there, she's always called the second Mrs. Godwin, although Wollstonecraft never took the name Godwin, so I don't know why she's the second. But anyway, <laughs> she never gets good press. I mean, in any of the biographers, I mean, some female biographers have tried to do a little more, mm. but, you know, usually it is fairly ruthless and, and and I was surprised you know that this film stayed in that mold you know it, I mean we don't have a lot of other independent evidence we don't know really even what her last name is most people say it I mean before that's vile she's French sort of uh, but anyway so so that's part of it but I think what the film's also so there's this the question of class difference that of course Percy Shelley is mm-hmm. the son of an aristocrat and Godwin is trying to get his money but then I think the other opposition that, they, that is, feeds into this, not as explicitly, it's not just middle class versus aristocratic in terms of art, but it's practical and idealist. And you know, mm-hmm. that's the fight at the end, or that's the debate. And Percy Shelley is often, I mean, is, and is often seen as more idealistic as compared to Byron on one hand, but also Mary Shelley. And so there, there is, even in Mary Shelley's uh, second text after Frankenstein and Matilda, the Percy Shelley figure, Woodville, says that kind of idealism speech, not quite as badly as here, but still, you know. <laughs> and, and she says, the, the Matilda figure says, you know, you come to feed off of my misery. 
and, I, and you're about to make a poem out of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a really strong statement. But, and she says, to me, this is all dreary reality. And I think this film is partly doing that also with Shelley. Like, she's Mary Shelley. She's caught in a class thing. But it's also really a question of how do you approach life with hope mm-hmm. or without it. I was struck um, by the way the film highlights the relationship between her stepsister, between Mary and Claire Claremont. Yeah. Um, you know, and Mary promises Claire that they'll go around the world yeah. together, and Claire eventually, um, what struck me strongly watching it the second time, this was, tonight was the third time, was how Claire becomes her preferred reader. I mean, Percy reads the novel, and he you know, wants to add these enlightenment ideals of perfection and hope, um, but Claire reads it and gets it. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. So, um, and and we'll talk later, near the end of our conversation, about your own work on friendship. But I wondered if you'd say something about the relationship between Mary Shelley and Claire Claremont, both what what we know about them historically and how it was represented in this film. Yeah, in the film, it's a it's a fairly romanticized view. You know, that was a fraught relation. I mean, they were. Yeah. They were. Um, well, you know, they were. <laughs> Uh, what would one say, foisted on each other, I mean, through um, the blended household. And, you know, when, when, when Mary Wilsoncraft Godwin goes to the Baxters, she's, she goes earlier. I mean, she, but, and she is sent... With, first of all, her, her hand has become almost paralyzed. Like, she, there's some sense of a disorder that is neurasthenic or something. And, and I think Godwin is, you know... I mean, he is worried about it, and she's consulted doctors, but there is this tension with, with Mrs. Godwin, and less with Claire at that point. Um, but anyway, so, so, so this notion that, first of all, that she comes back for, for Claire is crazy. I mean, it, has nothing, it, it isn't like that. Um, but also, they aren't that close. And in fact, uh, Claire is... Mrs. Godwin sends Claire to boarding school. Mm. Not away, but she gets more schooling. And so, so they don't have that kind of like, it's us against them. Um, but on the other hand, it is the case, all three elope together. Mm. And, um, and not, because, not because Mary had promised, I, I'll, you know, I'll show you the world, but just, I don't know why, really. <laughs> Because Percy likes a lot of women around. And so off they went. And, you know, they go in and out of friendship, that is, Claire and, and Mary. And, you know, the question of infidel, you know, whether they actually, where, whether Percy and, and uh, Claire have sex, probably, but mm-hmm. it's never really clear. There's another baby that Percy adopts in Italy that no one knows really why or how or who. <laughs> so, you know... That you know, so but but it, it, so this version is highly romantic. Yeah, it seems like the director mm-hmm. really wants to really wants to foreground female friendship. Yeah, and there's that that terrible moment. Well, it's both. We're supposed to look at it as this incredible moment when the the Clara, the baby, and Percy and and Shelley and Mary, and you know we're we're a threesome. Yeah, and so it, it upsets a, a prior threesome. Right. And Claire right. comes in and, you know, realizes, and then she goes off to, you know, make her hit on the big poet. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but, yeah. But it is this way that she is somehow being excluded from what had been their threesome. But it seems, it's interesting what you say, because I think the film really tries. The filmmaker 
because she so wants this to be a feminist take mm-hmm. on on Mary Shelley's life and choices, that the relationship with Claire is really central to that. Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, Claire was with Mary for a long time. You know, right. I mean, certainly after Percy died too. But, um, and you know, it. it Percy and Mary start a journal together when they're traveling and, uh, well, when they elope and then come back and go. And I mean, per- Mary takes it over ultimately mm-hmm. because Percy's busy with other things. But it is one of the places where they communicate in code about Claire because they feel like, you know, Mary can't really talk. You know, there's always right. these intrusions and these overheard conversations. And yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it's fraught. And, and Claire does say, you know, this was a family where, you know, if you weren't a, if you weren't an uh, author, you weren't anybody. So she's a singer. Yeah, so she's a singer. Yeah. And, I mean, one other thing that the film, I mean, it isn't really what you were asking, but one of the things that, you know, I mean, obviously their lives are so complex, a lot has to get streamlined. But what's left out altogether is Mary's other stepsister, Fanny. Mm-hmm. Who's Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter by Imlay, mm-hmm. and and that's sad, you know. I mean, that's I mean, it's sad, but I mean, it's that they were closer, and it's really Fanny's, it's really Fanny's story of rejection that's the strongest one. I mean, right. uh, and right. Fanny Fanny commits suicide the same year Harriet does. Right. So it's just a it's a mess, yeah. Well, speaking of a mess, um, critics have not been generous in their assessment <laughs> yeah. of this film. Oh, no. um, while they often celebrate the focus on Mary Shelley rather than the Frankenstein monster, they also describe the film as, at best, quote, a moderately interesting historical drama, and at worst, filmed in a manner that would be more at home on the CW network rather than Showtime or HBO. Woo. Um, so why do you, what do you think accounts for this critical reaction do you share any of it? Um, or do you think that maybe the story of Mary Shelley's life is hard to get right, would be very hard to get right in a two-hour format? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I don't think it's a brilliant film, but I think it's, I think it's more serious than that. And I think, I mean, her life is extremely hard to, to get correct. I mean, just just so much is going on so many people are living dying coming and going and so on and and the and what she's trying to um synthesize or react to and against um it would take too long to show so you know i think well, like for instance for instance with um you know you would know exactly does she lose three children in the time when she start when she leaves with percy with you know well, so, but they so only show another, one. They show one. Yeah. Either. Well, the other two don't die. I mean, this, this, mm. this. Um, you know, this ends with mm. the publication of Frankenstein. So that's that. The publication date is January first, eighteen eighteen. So at that point, only the one baby has okay. died, um, and and but that but they superimpose the the circumstances. I mean, that it got sick and that Percy made them leave the house. That's about the second Clara. Yeah. And and the first one was um, premature. Okay. And so so William is born by the time Frankenstein. Well, William and Clara are both born, but they don't. And, and Clara dies in 1818, but not till May. And then William dies in June of 1819. And then so there's only um, Percy Florence survives. Who she walks with at the end. 
Yeah. No, but I'm saying yeah. as a way of... Con- yeah. So we see, you know, foreshadowings of the the cradle rocking and yeah. then her dreams of yeah. the cradle rocking, the empty cradle, the cradle with the... Ba- you know, so it's... T- I, I don't know if that's her effort of the director to kind of suggest a longer process of loss. Yeah, I mean, she's certainly, yeah, she's alluding, I think, to a lot of them. I mean, like the Clara Clara. Some people say the first child baby isn't named, but then some others do call it Clara. I I thought it wasn't named, but anyway, um, it was a girl. And, uh, but, you know, there's also, of course, her dead mother, but what I also think, it comes back to the science question, too. It's not just galvanism that, you know, and um, Humphrey Davies' stuff on chemistry and transformation. It's that Mary Wollstonecraft... You know, it, and they allude to it once, although they say it's with Fuseli, but it was really Imlay. But anyway, you know, she does tr- try to kill herself twice, and and the second time, um, you know, she she jumps in in the in the Thames, and so she's she so she's pulled out of the water. But the Humane Society at that point, there's it's it's getting going, and and so there's a lot of discourse about resuscitation, mm-hmm. and and so it's not just the dead baby and the rubbing by the fire or galvanism. It's also that, you know, Wollstonecraft w- was dead. I mean, yes. or was you know was resuscitated, and she and that's what's really harrowing. I mean, that's not in the film, but she. Um, she, le- she did not want to, I mean, she left a note, made it clear she did not want to be resuscitated. And so, again, this is all in Godwin's memoir. And Mary Godwin, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, has read it mm-hmm. and knows then that actually not only did her mother die giving birth to her, her mother had killed herself before. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? The, right. the issue of the boundaries between life and death and, the, and birth and, and writing and progeny is very complex for her. And so, you know, what film could really do that? So I, I think it does try through some of these devices. Some are a little heavy-handed, but there are moments where there's actually, I think, something quite poetic mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to just talk a little bit about the film's director. Mm, um, yeah. so, uh, and I've written something, so allow me to get it right for you. Um, Saudi Arabian filmmaker Haifa al-Mansur uh, came to attention in 2012 with her uh, film, her first film, Vaja, which was told the story of a young Saudi girl determined to raise money for a bicycle despite resistance from her conservative community, girls can't ride bikes, women can't drive. Um, it was the first feature-length film um, ever directed by a female Saudi Arabian director. And for her second film, she wanted to do an English-speaking mm-hmm. project. Um, and her agent sent her the script, the Mary Shelley script, and she was moved by the story of a woman seeking her own voice, her own path. Um, and she, in interviews, and I know you watched some of them too, um, Al-Mansur felt that her film is a much-needed corrective to how Shelley is usually overshadowed by her creation. Um, so what can you tell us about female artists and female author, authors like Al-Mansur's long-standing interest in Mary Shelley? I think Mary Shelley is for... Uh, women artists, at least some, and women critics. Um, well, actually, I was gonna. I mean, I was gonna use the same word I often use in terms of the creature. I mean, so she is. She is an epitome of that for them. I mean, the embodiment of someone who. Um, 
wrote throughout her life in very, you know, I mean, Wollstonecraft fought more battles than Shelley, but still, Shelley, Shelley lived longer, and Shelley's work evolved in, you know, and, and the sort of publishing world um, was, you know, was getting more receptive to women, but mm-hmm. still, still not, you know, most, lots of texts were published anonymously or pseudonymously, and, you know, after, I mean, Mary Shelley's name was affixed to Frankenstein in the second, second edition after it became a play. But, you know, I think, anyway, to get back to Almanzar, I think she, you know, given especially what she was trying to do with Wajdeh, with the, right. where she's 10, the girl. Right. And it's, you know, and yes, in an even more repressive situation. But I think she, you know, she was drawn to Mary Shelley as, wow, I mean, Frankenstein is one of the most referred to texts in the Western canon, you know? And she was a teenager when she wrote it. I mean, a late teenager, but still 18 when she started it. And so I think that does captivate a lot of people's, but also women uh, artists' minds, you know? Because this book is so prescient, you know? And, and whatever, angle, whatever angle in the text interests you, you know, whether it's more of the thing about uh, bioethics and or life and death or relationality and so on, there it keeps evolving with the times. Mm-hmm. And and you know there are some aspects of the text that people would find outdated, but in general, in some ways, it's it's more timely now than it was even, then. or at least there's more people maybe that <laughs> yeah. that that identify with with the different things that she's trying to explore. So, you know, I know that uh, Almanzar was saying that. She just, I mean, she was attracted to the strength of the voice and, and kind of the, the, the strength of the voice and, and the depth of the seriousness with which the text tries to, and which, with which Mary Shelley as an author person tried to, tried to, address complexity, I guess, is the best way I can say it, and not, not resolve things. You know, Frankenstein doesn't really resolve. It more um, demolishes. Right. You know? Implodes. <laughs> yeah. Well, so tell, we spoke a little bit about this, but I think the audience would be interested in hearing. So what do scholars, as apart from female um, artists or authors or directors, but what do scholars say when they compare Mary Shelley to her famous mother? In terms of who is the more feminist tech, you know, writer, and so on. Yeah, well, in general, people see uh, Wollstonecraft as more feminist, um, and Mary Shelley as, um, well, yeah, in a certain way, pulling back from some of the autonomy or independence that uh, Mary Shelley, I mean, sorry, Mary Wollstonecraft advocated. I mean, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft wrote non-fiction as well as fiction. But, you know, her last work is fiction that rewrites her non-fiction work, Vindication of the Rights of Woman, as the Wrongs of Woman. And Mary Shelley's, you know, in Frankenstein, she's angry about a number of things. And then as her, as her, but she keeps writing novels, and they get, you know, in the late 20s and 30s, people call them often silver fork novels, which means domestic fiction and kind of of a, certainly of a much safer sensibility. So 
So feminist critics or critics more generally, well, most people only read Frankenstein, and they don't even read Frankenstein. <laughs> so, you know, if you read Shelley, you read Frankenstein. And hardly anybody reads like Lador and Matilda. No. Um, but, but those who do are, 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 are you know, there's usually a whiff of disappointment. I see. Um, and, and, and Mary Shelley does say in the 1830s, because somebody's writing her about joining a particular cause, and she says, you know, my parents did the causes, Percy did the causes, kind of like that, you know. I, I don't do the causes. And, and for me, you know, we were saying this, it depends on what, you mean, you know, what one means by feminist. So, so it's... It's not an interesting... De- I mean, you're not saying it that way. It's not an interesting debate to me who was more feminist. Right. Uh, but it, I think what, she, what I like about sh- what Shelley's doing, and I think it's feminist, if you want to put it that way, um, I mean, I like the term feminist, <laughs> is she, she's trying in so many ways to explore the consequences of this or that project or idea. And she considers herself, I mean, that is true, you know, the, at, at the end of the film, that when she's writing, she's writing the voice of the creature. So, so the text is identifying, I mean, the movie is identifying the creature's voice with her own. And, and, and that's, that's valid to a certain extent. But, but she's also, can, she was an experiment. She was an experiment of radical parents who didn't believe in marriage and who, you know, were about a kind of revolutionary independence and who, um, and, and, and she is like, well, okay, you know, if you're going to experiment and if you're going to especially bring into the world radically new ideas, part of what Frankenstein's interested in is are you responsible or shouldn't you give a thought at least to what kind of reception this new being will meet? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think her, her sticking with these questions, you know, and then, you know, same thing, I mean, it, it touches on that in the film, you know, where she'll often, you know, it, it, they did fall in love, Percy and Mary, and I like, you know, I like the passion that they, I mean, that was, that was there, and it was all tied up with meeting at the mother's mm-hmm. grave, and, 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 yeah, and Percy yes. coming to work with Godwin, you know, so it's all a hothouse of whoever's with whoever. And, but, but, you know, she also then confronts what those, you know, what those um, choices have caused. Well, and she thinks he isn't, you know, or, or that's how the film um, depicts it, although at the end he does, you know, they both sort of come to some agreement about that. But So I, I think it's, it's a, I, I, I find um, Mary Wollstonecraft laid out a certain agenda, which, of course, Mary, you know, the problem for Mary, in Mary Wollstonecraft that the film also raises is that, you know, there are many contradictions, obviously, between what she says and what she does, including suicide over men and so on. You know, and people get all bothered, how's that possible, what's feminist about that? And so I think it's true of Wollstonecraft, too. It's like, hello, people. You know, these things are not simple. (laughs) You can still advocate certain things and not yet, you know, be in a position to enact them fully. And so they they both are really trying to be open about... Uh... Passion. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think one, one thing we'll explore in the rest of this series, and I've read here and there people say, critics saying that really Frankenstein is a story. You're saying here it's depicted as Mary, that she's concerned with consequences, she, and later in her life she's not for causes. That was her parents' generation or Shelley's, but not her. And some have suggested that the, Frankenstein as a story is a kind of post-revolutionary story, like when when the cause fails or the mm. cause is not made, meant. So, for instance, there's a lot of Frankenstein uh, remakes in the 70s, which are we're going to see a couple of them here. We'll see Spirit of the Beehive set mm. in kind of post-Franco Spain, and then we're going to, you know, we'll watch Young Frankenstein, which is also, you know, 1974, mm. after the 60s, after, you know, certain... Um, idealisms and, um, and um, you know, calls to action have been transformed. Right. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that as Frankenstein is a kind of post-revolutionary text. I mean, certainly in a British tradition, it's very, you know, I don't know, I'm just wondering what you think. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is, is read that way. And, um, you know, he goes to Ingolstadt, the, you know, the creature... Mm-hmm. Um, is that right? Let's see. I was just... Well, anyway, that doesn't matter. It was about the terror anyway, so that's pre I mean, that's in the revolution. But yeah, so... Um, so, I, I, again, the context is radical change. Right. And... I think, again, because of what I said before with, with Shelley's attention to kind of unfolding consequences, I don't think it's anti-revolution. You know, right. people sometimes see it as reactionary. I think that's, you know, I just, I hate these categories and these, you know, because, I mean, same with the 70s, you know. If, if we, if there are, I mean, there are certain epochs, like the 1790s and the 1960s are understood to be these sort of radical um, generations of hope or idealism. Mm-hmm. The whole point about idealism is it's ideal. And you know, so it's not like it's going to be realized. Those are right. But so the work starts there. Yeah. And 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 she stays with those ideas. But the work starts with um having a less binary view mm-hmm. about dream vision and right. social practice. Right. Well, I want to just shift as we come to the end of our questions before we open it up to the audience. Um, to, in your own work on British Romanticism, and, and one of the things when you came to my graduate seminar and you talked about, there's all these different approaches to Frankenstein and Mary Shelley. And, um, and you know, over the years, you said you've really settled, you're really interested in questions of friendship. Mm. Um, and, you know... Um, non-conventional friendships, different kinds of families and affiliations. Um, I, and I wondered if you'd say more about that. One of the things I, I, I think I mentioned at the beginning, but maybe I didn't, but, you know, when I looked across, when we were trying to see what, because it is the 200th anniversary, there's all kinds of retrospectives and so on and so forth, and most of them are focused on questions of bioethics, and science, and what's, you know, these are, like, these are pressing questions right now. Mm. But you, you said that your own, your own interest has moved more and more towards questions of friendship. So I wonder if you want to say a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, as a reading of Romanticism, yeah, I mean, so part of what I'm trying to talk about is what I see as a, the radical legacy 
of British Romanticism is the way that, uh, and this touches a little bit on what you just asked me, but is that the discourse about social change, the, rela the relational structure that was seen as most likely to be conducive to justice was friendship. So it has the friends of man philosophy that, you know, is, was what was galvanizing, you know, the sense of, of, of democracy. But, but, the, but so that's one thing. British Romanticism is also understood to be a period of enormous friendship between people, especially words with Coleridge, Godwin, and Holcroft, right. and so on. And so, so I'm just partly trying to keep, keep those two frameworks in conversation with each other, along with the third, which is often seen as a reaction in you know, a disillusioned reaction to the friends of man philosophy, which is for them, they start talking about books as friends or writing as friendship. So for me, the radical legacy of, of British Romanticism is to triangulate those object relations of friends. So, it's, so, so it is in, you know, friendship, you know, interpersonal friendship linked as the, as the mechanism toward an outward, you know, we wouldn't talk about friends of man or any universal benevolence anymore, but certainly as, a, as, a, as an expansive, as they would say, an opening out of the heart. And for them, the nuclear family, for Godwin and Wollstonecraft, the nuclear family impedes that. It's an impediment to justice. Not, again, that all families do that, but, but that the structure of the nuclear family impedes justice because it not only relies on, but it sanctions. I mean, it allows you to feel good about caring about your own. And for Godwin and Wollstonecraft, that's tribalism. That's a problem. So I, I that's that for them. So that was a ra understood to be the radical relation. And, but for me, that's not enough. What, I, what they were really doing that I think is what I was saying, where the work begins is when, when the idealism fades. And that is, they, they, that, that I think culture, especially in that period, writing, but now we'd say the arts more generally, have to be understood as part of what is mediating interpersonal relations and any sort of outward-looking, more global, or at least more humane, if you want to put it, prospect. And without, without the third dimension, we just get in again to this, you're my friend, now you're not, you know, especially... I mean, you know, especially right. if we're trying to be allied on political causes, then you hurt my feelings and I'm done. You know, we, right. need, we need to be ballasted in, that, in, in, in cultural work more generally. So that's, that's mm. what's important for me. And that's why in, in this text, I mean, in this film, I'm, I, I'm sorry that it stays in that regard so domestic because, the, you know, even though it, you the know, so it does was... the free love thing, but it, but it, it's, it's kind of cynical about that. I mean, you know, in other words, we side more with the women and, you know, we aren't really taking Percy and Byron that seriously, right? <laughs> so, so that, for me, loses part of what the critique of, of the nuclear family was for them. But again, it is the case that Mary Shelley, I think, is less sure about that for all the dead babies, You're right. you know, and, and the dead babies is a real, you know, it's a real issue. 
But it just doesn't have to be a familial. I mean, one should care about dead babies. Right. Or, you know, how to generate infant life without it having to be your own and having to then make it back into some heteronormative thing. Right. Right. So. Well, please join me in thanking Professor Julie Carlson <laughs> for helping us kick off the series and, and giving us lots to think about as we watch these other films, which with I think many of you will be familiar, but we're going to look at them in new ways. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.